All right, all right. Hope all you guys are doing well. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'm Steve. Uh, I help out here at Colossae in Sherwood. Just glad that you are here with us tonight. Um, we're continuing in our series in the book of Matthew, going through the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Follower Series. Um, but as we start, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had an authority figure in your life tell you something to do and you willfully choose to ignore it? Can you think of something like that? Um, whether it was the police officer who specifically told you to get off your phone, gave you a warning, and then you got that ticket. Happened to me, didn't listen, got that $160 ticket. Thanks, LA, California. I owed them a lot of money. Uh, I, I remember at a time, too, when I was 12, and uh, I totally was interested in this girl that I'd met at school, and a bunch of people were going over to her house. And there was a rule in my house, though. It was a military house. There was a lot of unnecessary rules. Uh, but one of those unnecessary rules was that when you showed up at a location, you called, I called my parents to let them know that I showed up. But in the hustle and bustle of everything, all my friends, we went over to this gal's house to have a barbecue and hang out after school, and I completely forgot. So 45 minutes later, you hear the knock at the door, and lo and behold, my parents showed up, and they totally dragged me off, which was awesome, especially because I was really interested in this girl. It didn't go well for me. Okay. That was junior high, I'm married now, Nadia's way better. So, moving forward, um, could it, maybe it was a teacher that told you you cannot be late on this assignment, and you were. So, I went to Bible college, one of, the, uh, one of the assignments that we did for my biblical counseling class was called the Personal Improvement Project. So, you would pick a topic where you totally stunk, and you tried over the semester to grow in that topic. So for me, it was self-discipline. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be punctual. I'm not going to be lazy. I'm going to get stuff done. So I chose my personal improvement project on self-discipline. So when I turned it in two weeks late, I almost failed the class. My professor literally said, I should fail you for this. Uh, but he was gracious to me. Uh, but yet, you, you, you laugh because you've been there, right? There have been times in your life where you ignored an authority, and there were consequences that came. Um, tonight, I want to take a look at a text, and I really want, to, I want us to hear this text from the mouth of Jesus. As Christians, Jesus is our authority, and yet, do you ever feel that authority struggle in your life, where you desire to be in authority, uh, but not underneath authority? And yet, as God's people, we live as people who are underneath authority. Um, so how do we exist in that tension? Tonight, we're talking about one of those topics that most marital fights come from. We're talking about a topic that probably keeps people up at night more than they would like to admit. Um, we're talking about a topic tonight that really causes a lot of pain in a lot of people's lives. And that topic is money. Tonight, when Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about money, the issue of money, and how we are to live as God's people in light of that. So if you have your Bible or a fake Bible on your phone, Matthew 6, this is where we're going, okay? Matthew 6, verse 19, and I'm just going to read the whole text, and then we're going to break it up piece by piece. So it says this in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is actually darkness, how great is the darkness? 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So I'm going to ask us three questions during our time together, and we're going to recap those at the end. But the first question I want to ask you tonight is this. Where are you storing your treasure? So again, verse 19, it says this. We're going to go up through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been through at least one chapter, starting in the second chapter a couple weeks ago in chapter 6. Chapter 5, the majority of that chapter is Jesus redefining the law for his audience. He's saying, you think you know the law, but let me tell you what's really going on in the law. He says, you have heard it said in the Old Testament, but I tell you this, whether it be about lust, murder, divorce, whatever, whatever those topics would be. When you move into chapter 6, Jesus is now talking about practicing our righteousness, Because back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you have no shot in getting into the kingdom of heaven. So since we have a better righteousness, he's talking about what it's like to live out our righteousness. So last last week we looked at prayer, uh, we looked at giving to the needy, um, we looked at fasting. And so tonight we're going to take a look at what it means for us to look at our money differently. So the tone changes though. As you're reading this text, he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 6 by warning them, right? Remember, beware of how the scribes and Pharisees practice their righteousness. So he starts off warning the people, and then he moves to that they assume, uh, he assumes rather, that they're actually doing something. So he's assuming they're praying, he's assuming they're fasting, he's assuming that they're giving to the needy. And, but tonight, he, he completely changes his perspective, and he goes from warning us to assuming that we're doing something to actually commanding us to do something. Here's the command. He tells his listeners not to pursue a very natural pursuit, amassing wealth for yourselves here on earth. So when you, it says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, the word lay up really in the Greek is to amass or to uh, reserve or to store up. And treasure literally meant a deposit. So it's translated all throughout uh, the New Testament in a number of different ways. But primarily, it's either literal wealth or figurative wealth. So I want to be entirely clear. Jesus is commanding his followers to not store up treasures for themselves here on earth. And what he's talking about is wealth. He's talking about the treasure of wealth. And he gives a couple of pretty clear reasons on why they shouldn't. There's moths. They're going to eat through the clothes. So you spend money and you get some clothes that you really like. And, you know, you're going to have moths eat through clothes. Uh, There's rust. If you buy something that's metal, it's going to get tarnished in the rain. They didn't have uh, amazing roofs that covered their back patio. You know, they had huts back in those days. So there was no back patio. So whatever you left outside when it got rained on had rust on it. And then... You know, human nature is the same whether it was in the first century or today. Somebody's going to break into your hut and steal something. So don't store up for those things there. But throughout this series, the cool part about the graphic with the follower series, whether you see it on the bottom there, is that oftentimes we as Christians think we're living right side up, but Jesus tells us we're living upside down. And this may be one of those topics tonight that as you hear this, that God wants to shift your perspective. That God wants to remind you that, hey, you think you may be living right side up on this, but be careful, you may be living upside down. So, okay, if we were to stop there, many of us would take this and go, okay, I just got to sell everything, 
Jesus says, I can't have money. Money's horrible. I want to be entirely clear. There's nothing wrong with money. Money is not a bad thing. We need money to buy uh, food for our children. You know, 1 Timothy says, you know, if a man doesn't take care of his family, you know, he's worse than an unbeliever. So brother's got to pay for some food, you know. There's all that good stuff happening. And we use money as a tool. But for many people, money becomes the idol. Money becomes the thing. And so as we're talking about this, I want us to be careful and remember that money is not the problem. Again, it's the heart issue behind it. So Jesus also says something very unique. He also says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth. But he uses the same command in the original language to tell them to actually lay up treasures in heaven. So the issue then really isn't money. The issue is where you're projecting your money is going to go. It's all about trajectory here. Are you thinking about the temporal here and now, or do you make decisions with your money thinking about the future? Do you take the things that you treasure and think about them just here on earth, or do you actually store up treasures that when you get to eternity... You're going to see the way in which you've invested in people and been generous and loved them and served them, and you see that eternal reward. And Jesus is pretty clear. He says, hey, (laughs) there's not going to be thieves in heaven who's going to steal your stuff. There's not going to be moths. There's not going to be rust. There's not going to be anything that takes your treasure and diminishes it. So let's be clear. Jesus is telling his followers to actively be pursuing storing up treasures in heaven with the same exact command he told them not to store it up here on earth. And you see, Jesus is really talking about investments here. You know, many of us have retirement accounts, 401ks, 403bs, and IRA, whatever you have. But the point of a retirement account is to invest money so that it would grow, so that it would do something, so that you have a great return on your investment. That's why there's money market accounts, CD accounts, etc., etc. The goal is to get a better return on your investment. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, guys, don't just find your treasure here. If you find it here, it stops. Do you remember when the Pharisees just wanted praise? They got their clap, and what happens? That's it. But if you did your righteousness before God, he's going to reward you, right? That's the passage we talked last week. So Jesus is really talking about the future investment here, and he says, guys, we got to take our eyes off of the temporal reality in which we live, and we have to look at what's eternal. We have to look in that way. So in verse 21, he ends it with this very popular and very well-known statement, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this is the big idea from this text. So if there's nothing else you take away, take this away. This is what Jesus is saying. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he cares about the heart. He always says, guys, I care about your motivations before your actions. In anything we can look at back in the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. So when it comes to our lives, we can't just fake it till we make it. Like if we want to pray, we have to pray with the right motives. If we want to give, we have to give with the right motives. It starts here in the heart. You can't just try to change. Your heart has to be in a different place in order to change. Now here's where Jesus gets really interesting. In this context, he actually breaks that mold. He says, you know, let's spend, he doesn't say like, let's spend some time changing your heart about how you feel about money, and then you're going to make the right actions. Literally here it says, when you make the right steps with your money, your heart is going to follow it. 
It's the only time that I've found in Scripture where Jesus talks about the action first before the heart motivations. And maybe that's because Jesus knows how much money has our hearts. Maybe that's the reason. I don't know. That's just speculatory. But the reality is, is that he says, now change your actions when it comes to your treasure. And if you change it, your heart will follow. So really, why does Jesus command this? Because again, he's after the heart. So even when he's talking about, hey, we need to change our behavior in this area first. Why? Because ultimately our heart's going to follow it. If you remember in Psalm 37, 4, David talks about delighting yourself in the Lord and the result of you choosing to take action and delighting yourself in the Lord is what? He gives you the desires of your heart. So the whole pursuit, your actions must change here before your heart does. So he further illustrates this point in in 22 and 23. And this question I want to ask you is, have you discerned your heart? Have you spent time discerning your heart? So verse 22 says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, it seems to me you could take this literally or figuratively and arrive at the same point. So we're going to go both perspectives. Literally here, the eye is the lamp unto your body. When you open your eyes, your body has the ability to see light. So scientifically speaking, there's light entering into your body, right? So when light enters into your body, you can then see. But if your eyes don't work, you, you actually don't get light into your body. When your eyes are shut, if you're blind, there's nothing coming into your body from a light perspective. And so we can look at it that way. So figuratively, the eye could be the focal point of your body. Whatever you focus on is going to fill your life. So if you focus on something that is light, oftentimes the Apostle John talks about light and darkness, good and bad. So it's a literary form of talking about good and evil light and darkness. So the same thing here if we take it figuratively. If you, if you choose to focus on something that's light, your whole body is going to be full of light. If you choose to focus on something that's dark, your whole body is going to be full of dark. Regardless of whether you take it literally, though, or figuratively, you end in the same spot. If the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So what Jesus is really trying to do here is call out our own self-deception. We spoke about this last week, right? Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? So we, we live in a reality that our hearts, even though we're believers and we love Jesus, we can deceive ourselves in how we think through things. So Jesus says this can be true about even how we think about our treasure. We may be thinking that our heart is in the right spot. So we may think that we're full of light, but if we're actually full of darkness, how great is that darkness that we actually believe might be light? So when Jesus asks the question, he's saying, hey guys, he wants to reveal the reality of their own deceitful hearts, and he continues in verse 24. This is where he puts the nail on the head. No one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So after all of this, he sums it up there. 
It says, hey guys, you, you, you can't serve God and money at the same time. It's impossible. So in this first century context, the master-slave relationship was very common. So for the original listener who would have been hearing this from the mouth of Jesus, they would have understood the master-slave relationship. Unfortunately for us, when we think of like the master-slave relationship, we think of like movies like Amistad or the, the miniseries Roots, where you see slavery in its most horrible of forms. So when we look at this text, we need to see master and slave not in the horrendous that it happened in our American history, but the way that it was in ancient Israel. And that is more like a boss and an employee relationship. Because unlike slaves in, in our American history, slaves back then were given rights. So really, you were like a worker to a boss. So when we think master-slave, that's what we need to think of. So we can think of it this way, too. My other job is I work at Starbucks, okay? How many of you have been a part of the Green Apron Army? Anybody? Leanna. Leanna and I used to work at Marcus, too. And none of you, I'm really surprised because everybody at some point in time works at Starbucks. Okay, we're going we're gonna, to, let's illustrate it this way, okay? Yesterday, Nadia and I, for the first time, went to a rival, not, not that we don't go to other coffee shops, because we're just, we love coffee regardless of who makes it, but we visited Dutch Brothers for the first time yesterday. Did not change my life, just an FYI, I wasn't, eh, it was all right. I had one of those Irish cream things, it was, it was enough. But, imagine if I was both a Starbucks employee and a Dutch Brothers employee at the same time. It wouldn't work. My boss would be asking me to go to the coffee shop early in the morning when my other boss has already scheduled me to be there in the morning. Um, the, the stuff that's served there is monumentously different. You walk into Starbucks, there's 9,000 options. You go to Dutch Brothers, you have a menu the size of an 8.5 by 11 paper, you get five options. You know, you go to Starbucks, there's a pastry case full of food, and at Dutch Brothers, you get muffins. That's all you get. You get muffins. I checked the menu this morning, so just to make sure I was accurate on this. You know, Starbucks is all about drip coffee and brewed coffee, and Dutch Brothers has nothing to do with that. It's all espresso-based drinks. So if we were, I know it's a silly example, but things are conflicting. I, I couldn't be a worker of Starbucks and Dutch Brothers at the same time because they're in conflict with one another. Now, in the ancient world, there's also, you know, scholars who have said that when you were a slave, there's times where a slave was partially owned and partially free. So there's, if if you're the master over that slave, you're like, are you working for me now or are you not? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. There's confusion that's happening. There's conflict that's there. So what Jesus is trying to say, hey guys, you cannot serve one and not the other. It's either God or money. It can't be both. So Jesus is revealing the reality of the listeners' hearts and wanting to bring them to a place of being honest about where they're at when it comes to understanding money in light of the kingdom of God. So that's the text. That's what Jesus says. I know you didn't come to church thinking we're talking about money, but hey, it's game time. We're talking about money tonight. I want to ask us similar questions. So those same three questions we talked about in the text I want to talk about it from our perspective, where we're at in our lives here in Sherwood, Wilsonville, Tualatin, Newburgh, wherever you're from, and how we then live out our righteousness when it comes to this issue. So first, that first question, what is your treasure? Are you living eternally minded with the things that you've been given, or are you living in a temporal way? I want to remind you that Jesus 
isn't against having money. He is purposely for how you use it. That's what he's after. So our hearts can't be misguided. You know, we have to answer this question, but are we honest enough as God's people to be honest enough about where we are when it comes to our money? You know, for many of us, we know the answer, but oftentimes we're not honest enough to be truthful in how we work through this. You know, John MacArthur said in one of his commentaries that where we spend our money is truly a good barometer of where our spiritual priorities lie. And if, if, if we were set in our current cultures, you know, our, our heart, like we learned, our heart's going to follow our actions. And that's what I think is so crazy about this one context, because everywhere else Jesus is talking about, it's your heart, it's your heart, it's your heart. And now he's like, change your actions, change your actions, change your actions. You know, David Platt, uh, he's a pastor down in Alabama, I believe it is. He was on a, an interview show when he was talking about this very issue of money. And one of the other pastor was deemed more of like the prosperity gospel pastor, and he was deemed as more of the poverty gospel pastor, which is just horrible, horrible stereotypes. But he, he said that the reality is he wants to live in life in such a way where he can be generous with everything that he has. Because oftentimes we have things, but we don't know how often things have our hearts. And that's a crazy reality that I think many of us in America work through. Martin Luther, back in the 15th century, said it this way. There's three conversions to a man. The mind, the heart, and the purse. That's the third conversion. To where in a lot of ways, what he saw is that there were people who were living like Christians in their minds and in their hearts. But when it came to what mattered most for them, that was the final conversion that had to happen. For some of us, maybe our hearts need to be reoriented about the reality that what we think is actually ours isn't. You know, James chapter 1 says that everything comes down from the Father of lights, and everything is a gift from Him. So our money, our treasures, whatever we have, it's a gift from God. And it's a gift from God to be used. You hear this all the time when it comes to our children, right? Our children aren't ours. We've been called to disciple them and tell them about Jesus. It's the same thing when it comes to our money. It's not ours. God has gifted it to us for us to use for his good pleasure. So the question stands, what are you treasuring? If it's eternity, then you'll be one of us who see money as a tool to advance God's kingdom rather than seeing it as security for our own selves and our emotional stability. You know, what are those treasures in heaven? That's an honest question when we come to a text like this. If Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven, what are those? The honest answer is that it's something eternal. It's not something physical. It's something eternal. And yet, when we open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy 6, if you want to go there, jump there. 1 Timothy 6 would also be on the screen. But in 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul says kind of what we're supposed to do in order to receive treasures in heaven. says this. There it is. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Why? The storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
What's crazy about this is that many of us can forfeit what we think is truly life by choosing to not be generous with God's things. And that's the reality that we have to take a look. Okay, so uh, think of it like buyer's remorse, right? I don't want any of us to have like eternal buyer's remorse where we spend our time just wishing and kicking ourselves that we would have spent our money differently and done things differently. So when Nadia and I bought our Mazda, um, I was the one who was a little bit more aloof. So I walked in and I'm like, hey, we're going to buy a car today. And Nadia's like, that's probably not the first thing you should say walking into a car dealership. So we, we talk to this guy, we find this Mazda that we really, really, really like and looks like a great deal. And so we purchase it, we get it. And when the salesman hands me the keys, I literally remember this. This was the worst moment. And it only got worse. So this is the beginning of the snowball. Watch this thing grow. Um, He handed me the keys and he said, don't forget to fill it up with 91 gas. And I'm all, okay. What else didn't you tell me, buddy? Because I I should have asked that question, like what, what type of gas does it use or whatever. But literally, this car has been a lemon for Nadia and I. I have done so much work on it. I've replaced two batteries, a front headlight, the shocks weren't working properly, the driver's window broke, the passenger window broke, the driver's side door handle broke off not once, but twice, uh, the electrical on the driver's side seat wasn't working, so Nadia's about 5'5", five, five, so she would use that to actually get up and see, so she's got great leg strength now to kind of push herself up and see while she drives. I mean, I, I, I purchased an extra insurance policy that would cover up to 100,000 miles of what you know, of what they called manufacturer malfunction. So I'm like, this is great in the clear. Not one of those things was considered manufactured malfunctions. It was horrible. So I even tried to, to cover my butt in that, and I couldn't. So if, if Nadia and I, literally, we talked about this, if we would have just purchased a van, it would have been great. We want to have a big family, so we want to have lots of kids. So we're just like, we should have bought that van. We just should have done it because if we had bought a better van, then maybe we wouldn't be dealing with all of this stuff. Jesus says how you spend your money here will affect the treasures you have forever. Are you going to experience eternal buyer's remorse because of the way in which you spend your money here? The future life that is to come is the real reality, guys. We, we sit here and we live in this physical world, and yet we forget there's a spiritual world happening all around us. There's, there's fights for the souls of men happening all the time. And just because we don't see it doesn't mean that it's not real. So the second question for us to consider, have you discerned your heart? In light of all this, when it comes to money, do you think your heart is full of light when it could be full of darkness? Jeremiah 17, 9, hearts are deceitful, but the good news in verse 10, for the Lord your God knows your heart. So think of David, right? David, the guy who has done a lot of horrible things in Scripture, but yet God calls him a man after his own heart. In Psalm 139, he says the first line, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You've known my ways from afar. And then he goes on about how he was knitted in his mother's womb and how all of this stuff happened in his life. And then you get to the very end of the psalm and he bookends it like this. He says, now God, search me and know my heart. 
there's that moment for us as believers when we remember that God is our Father who's not angry with us, but desperately loves us. So when it comes to this issue, do not be motivated by guilt. Guilt does nothing but help you in the moment feel better about yourself. Conviction causes you to actually change. Think of 1 Corinthians 7, right? When the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, worldly sorrow is good for one thing, but godly grief will actually lead you to repentance, to lead you to good change. So what's the Holy Spirit doing in your heart? I don't know where you're at with money. You don't know where I'm at with money. But as God's people, can we be people who talk about how we handle our money? It's so taboo in this culture for us to talk about what we make or how we use it. It's strange. You know why? Because I think oftentimes we idolize it. And we don't want to share the reality of how we're spending. But a part of being God's people is being the checks and balances system, right? Where we get to look at each other and say, hey, am I growing in this area? Can you help me grow in this area? That's the desire of God's heart is to make us more like him. So maybe your week this week is asking God that question. God, am I deceiving myself here? Am I thinking I'm in one spot when you actually know I'm not? Would you reveal that to me? You know, the beauty of the Father is is that he will because he desperately loves you and he desperately wants you to change in accordance with the power of the Spirit in your life. And finally, here's that third question for us. Who is your master? This is what I find crazy. In the American context, when we read the Bible, we so much of the time read our own context into the scriptures, right? In our world, we live in a free world. But remember what Jesus says. He says, you're a slave in this text. You're not free, guys. You're free to serve God or you're free to serve money, but your freedom is actually for slavery's purpose. Because God has bought us as his people. So the question really becomes not who's our master, but who are we enslaved to? Are we enslaved to money or are we enslaved to, to God? Have you ever seen how money can be a wicked master? When your life is ruled by money, here's how things can respond. You overspend because you desire to have more things than what the Lord has chosen to give you. Have you been there? I've been there. Okay, I'll just confess. Cool, I'll just confess my sin so we can all just confess our own sin. It's good. I've been there. And because of that, you're in debt. And this debt causes you to worry about, oh, how am I going to pay this thing off? What, what am I going to do? Uh, this could cause a fight between you and your spouse. I started the message by saying, hey, this, this is the topic that marital spouses fight about. It's this. And sometimes having more money just doesn't make you thankful. In fact, when money is our master, it's always something we want more of. This is why we want, this is why, if we're honest, we feel better when there are zeros at the end of the bank account than at the beginning. Okay? We have more safety and security when we look at the bank account and go, ah, oh, there's a couple grand in the savings. If, if everything hits the fan, we're fine. When in reality, who's our security? Jesus provider, our Father, who desperately, desperately loves us. Sometimes there's sinful comparison or favoritism that occurs when, when debt's our master. When money's your master, you treat people differently, don't you? Favoritism, this is where when you have money and you look around at others who don't, you, you don't look at them like they're made in the image and likeness of God. You look at them by their status. 
Or there's comparison, the whole keeping up with the Joneses suburban mentality. Like, this is a literal thing that happens. When money is our master, you use it to keep a persona of who you want to be seen as rather than taking a look at who you really are. People are seen now as competition to you rather than people that you are ready to serve and love for the gospel's sake. So then what does it look like for God to be our master instead of money? We don't hoard money. We don't stockpile it in order to feel safe and secure. God is our security. We can freely give to those who are in need because we have a Father who freely gives to us, right? That is the gospel. Whatever God has done to us and we do to others, it is a demonstration of the gospel of Jesus. We, we, we don't look at money like it's ours, like I said earlier, but we look at it like it's his. We don't look at money and we think, gosh, what am I going to use this for? We look at money and think, God, how am I going to further your kingdom? You know who really sucks at that? This guy right here. Like when I get 80 bucks, I don't go like, oh, this is great. How am I going to use this for God? So just so you know, we're all in the same boat, okay? I'm just swimming forward. Y'all are swimming behind me. It's fine. We're all in the same boat. And what that does is like we don't recognize that it's God's anyway. It's like I actually think it's mine. And that's where I forget about the investment that's ahead of me, but I think about my own investment right now. And see, this is what I think about so much for our context. We have an opportunity to demonstrate to the rich what it looks like to not be mastered by money. We live in an affluent area. In Washington County, Sherwood's like number two next to Lake Oswego for like median household income. That means there's more money here than almost anywhere in, in Washington County. So as we live out the gospel here, what does it look like to be people who live in a context that loves money and for us to say, we're going to give it away? That's going to look crazy to people. You get your bonus. You choose to use it on the homeless guy around the corner to love him and serve him. Your neighbor's going to think you're crazy. But then there's that open door to talk about Jesus. There's that open door to, to say something about who he is. We can show a city that money doesn't have to have its grip on us, that it's so much better to be enslaved by God than to be enslaved by money. And so in light of all those three questions, may we always remember that first and foremost that we are disciple makers. Each one of us has been given the Spirit of God for ministry. I'm not the one who does ministry. Biblically speaking, Bucky, me, some of the elders are here to help you do ministry. So you have a responsibility before God to be a disciple maker, to talk about Jesus, to invite people into God's community, to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ through your words and through your actions. And if we get to do that by using monetary means to show people who actually worship money that they don't have to, can you believe what the Spirit of God would do in this place for his glory at this time? So we ourselves, though, if we're going to call people to that, have to look at our own hearts. And that's the beauty of the Scriptures, right? It's like a surgery session where the Holy Spirit opens it up and just says, hey guys, there's stuff I want to work on. If you leave this cancer in your body, it's going to kill you. And this is what God's after tonight is our hearts. So as we close, we're going to sing. Here's what I want you leaving with tonight. We have to change our perspective first before our hearts can change in this area. It feels so contradictory, but I challenge you to do it this week. 
What are some ways this week that you can change the actions of how you handle your treasure in order to allow your heart to catch up? So that when your heart catches up, you're totally in, you're totally ready, and you're totally willing to be like Jesus, who was generous on our behalf, right? So let's pray together.